Gagan and you're listening to a special episode of the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Hyper Exponential. Today's guest is someone pretty unique for our sector, because he's a software engineer who became a senior actuary and then founded his own insurance-focused technology business. Amrit Santhrasenan, co-founder and CEO at Hyper Exponential Story, is a classic of the entrepreneurial genre. Frustrated with the lack of an insurance-specific decision-making platform to bring together underwriters, actuaries, and the exponentially growing data sets that an increasingly digital world is producing, Amrit decided to build his own. The longer I'm around, the more I find that an unorthodox combination of skills and experience often unlocks extra value, and Amrit is a great example of this. He's also not a stereotypical actuary, because, amongst his many talents, he has the sort of communication skills that will put many top brokers to shame. So, this podcast is an incredibly eloquent summing up of Hyper Exponential's business model and a wider and very detailed examination of the state of insurance today. Ironically, you could argue that underwriters and actuaries used to work closer together until technology started to get in the way. Amrit is on a mission to bring back a much tighter feedback loop between the actuaries who interrogate the data to uncover insights and the underwriters who have to take those insights and turn them into decisions out in the real world. Pricing is at the intersection of all the most exciting things that are happening in insurance today. It's where data, brainpower and market savvy all come together to try and give carriers an edge over their competitors. Amrit's great company and a dream guest, so technologists and technophobes alike Do listen on as we set the world to rights. You certainly don't need any tech knowledge to get the benefit of Amrit's insights. Enjoy the podcast. Amrit, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thanks for having me, Mark. Tell us a bit about your career to date and a bit about yourself. Just introduce yourself to the audience. Sure thing. So I am a software engineer turned actuary. I like to joke that I was one of the five people that graduated around the time of the dot-com bubble bursting and thought it would be a bad idea to be a software engineer. So (laughs) studied software engineering at university. Yeah, at that time, decided that that wasn't for me for a number of reasons. Like many people fell into insurance, had family member in insurance, said, well, why don't you go and look at actuarial work? You love maths. It's business centric. It's business focused. And he was in the London market. He's an underwriter. Introduced me to the actuarial profession, did what lots of graduates do, applied for a job, fell into the London market working for Catlin in 2005. And then did you have to do your actuaries exams and all that stuff? I did. I survived my actuarial exams, made it all the way through qualified as an actuary. Yeah. And I've been working in the sector since the mid 2000s. And so when did you get this idea for Hyper Exponential? Yeah, I was always interested in building my own business, but I said I would never set up a business unless I thought I had a really an idea worth chasing. So I was not an entrepreneur looking for an idea. The idea found me and helped me become an entrepreneur. So worked in the industry since 2005, had a wonderful career, started at Catlin, worked there for a long time, spent time in London and Canada doing lots of different parts of actuarial work. Catlin was an amazing place to be schooled as an actuary. And people like Paul Jardine knocking around the place. Uh, yeah, exactly. They had actuaries all through the business, some of which have been my mentors and friends. And yeah, Paul I'm, Brandle also an actuary? Paul wasn't an actuary, no, wasn't although it's close no. to an actuary as you can get in many ways. So Yes. And then so was this something born out of frustration? Sometimes that's always a good inspiration for a product to think, goodness me, I think someone's got to do this better. It might as well be me. Yes, exactly. So from Catlin, I ended up working at Tokyo Marine Kiln. Software engineering routes never left me. And so working in the sector, I was in charge of the analytics division for Tokyo Marine Kiln. I had a great career there. Was the first pricing actuary to work in the market, ended up being in charge of that division. And you hit the nail on the head. 
at that time, I was head of pricing and analytics for Tokyo Marine Kiln, wanted to build a 21st century platform for them. You had your software engineering in your back pocket. So it's a bit of a good combination, really. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when you're a software engineer, you always see systems and you go, this isn't working as well as it could be. And so I did exactly that. Exactly. As you said, they call it frustration driven development. I saw a broken system uh, or actually didn't see a broken system. Or was there just no system? I saw no system to help <laughs> me do the job that I needed. And so, so saw a broken system, maybe not with the software, but a, a broken market that lacked a software designed and built actually for the insurance sector. So using lots of things that were in the market that weren't purpose built for the nature of the challenges we had. And so did what founders do, decided to go and build one myself. Excellent. When was that? That was 2017. I think the idea for HX has been in my mind for a long time, but 2017 when I really saw actually that was the opportunity to go and do it. And just a quick point on HX and hyper-exponential, are they interchangeable? Good question. My marketing team will tell me off. I should say hyper-exponential, but when I say my Amrit Santharasanan from hyper-exponential, it takes a lot of practice. <laughs> so yes, from hyper-exponential. It's a lot of syllables though. Yeah. Lots of syllables. When your name is Santharasanan, it's much easier to choose hyper-exponential as a name. But yes, hyper-exponential, you're right. Yes, often with my surname, I just go for Mr. G or something. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Excellent. So 2017, did you get investment? And what was it you were trying to build? That's the most important thing. I mean, should we say it's an actuarial platform? Is that what you wanted? You wanted something where an actuary could put all their models and not lose them and maybe try and get rid of some of their spreadsheets, that kind of thing? Uh, it's a good question. So I think I wouldn't say I wanted to build an actuarial platform. I think this is one of the big frustrations I had that kind of making better decisions with data is not an actuarial problem or an underwriting problem or a technology problem. It's all of those things. So we wanted to build a better system for data-driven decision-making. Right, okay. And so that was very important to me. Yeah, I saw the opportunity actually to build something that was not the same in the market as what we were being shown and what I was seeing emerging. I wanted to help something that brought the actuaries, underwriters and the technology people in the companies that we sell to now, that I worked in at the time, brought them together to build a much tighter feedback loop to actually drive better decisions. So you did all this development, presumably you've got some investment and did development. And what's the core product? What's your calling card? If someone says, well, you know, what's the name of this product? What do you sure do? Sure thing, yeah. So product's called Renew, HX Renew. It is a decision intelligence platform. So yeah, we always say we're not a pricing platform. We're not a spreadsheet replacement system. We're very, very focused on not helping people just take their spreadsheets and migrate them to a web-based front end. It's a platform to help drive that tight feedback loop between the people who are using the data to generate insights and then the people who are using the insights to generate decisions and actually keep a really, really tight feedback loop between those people. Because one of the things that I saw when I worked in the market, I was an actuary working with underwriters at the coalface. I did that for 12 years. And I saw very clearly when I was working in the market that if I had a very close relationship with the underwriters I was working with, we just got much, much better results. As the market became more technical, more technological, things started to become IT projects. And what I saw was lots and lots of stages in between me doing my work and the underwriters doing their work. And I felt that feedback loop expand. And I saw very clearly that I was not able to help our clients do their jobs as well. So I wanted to build a platform that brought the actuaries and the underwriters much, much closer together. So everything works better when the actor is immediately feeding back on what the underwriter's just done and vice versa. Like yeah. And you're sort of saying, well, actually, that you're a bit off there or yeah, that was a bit keen or... Exactly. It sounds kind of obvious, but I think one of the things that people don't realise is that actually in the market, since time immemorial, we've had spreadsheets. And spreadsheets have lots and lots of issues. Like, I don't think we need to go into the detail of all the issues of spreadsheets because those have been hammered home on a billion different podcasts. But one of the things they do do is they allow very close, you know, the word is seamless collaboration between the actuaries and the underwriters. 
We wanted to create a product that gave the enterprise-grade resilience of a web-based platform that did all of the boring things that people don't want to spend their time on an insurance company, setting up databases, making web forms look pretty and run anywhere, do all the things like backups, resilience, scalability. But we wanted to give them that seamless experience of actuary and underwriter working really, really closely together without lots of barriers that are inherent in building something very technical in the way. So the problems that are involved that I just talked about are very, very boring for insurance companies. Mm-hmm. And they're very exciting for engineers. So database design is not something that I think if you talk to the executives in an insurance company that they would go, that sounds really fun. Well, I think they like the output, but they don't really understand how it works. No, and it's not their jobs, right? Their shareholders don't pay them to do that. <laughs> like, that's not what they say you need to be great at. You know, I always say this to our clients. Like, if you're building a lot of technology, you are axiomatically a technology company. And do you want to do that? Do you want to build technology or do you want to build on technology? And we want to be that platform that people build really, really great decision-making systems, intelligent decision-making systems on top of that platform. Yeah, using your platform. Using our platform, exactly. It's interesting you say about not wanting to be the spreadsheet killer. Can your spreadsheet live somewhere in, inside Renew then? Or? Yeah, so it's a good question. So what would I say? Because there's I, nothing really wrong with a spreadsheet as long as it's got the version, everyone knows that we're all using the right one. Yeah, you know, what would I say? Not using think, last year's one, for example. Yes, and I think... Spreadsheets are wonderful for specific use cases, and there are always going to be examples in any company where spreadsheets are useful. The thing I saw was that was not the case for pricing systems. Right. And so I think it's very important. And why is that? What is it about pricing systems that just breaks spreadsheets? Yeah, it's, it's a good is question. Is it just the amount of data, the amount of lines? or It's the 21st century now, so people want to build a coherent data asset that ultimately becomes the foundation of lots of the decisions they're making using that data. And they're building that for something for the future as well. That, that's data they want to be able to use 20 years hence. They want to use it 20 years hence, but they also want it to contain more than numbers and letters. They want it to contain very large amounts of data that can take the form of video, voice, handwritten notes. They want it, like, data no longer just means And I suppose collecting stuff that you don't necessarily know today what it might be useful for, but you're going to keep it because 20 years' time, you might find that that's a fantastic field of data that was now going to provide loads of insights. Yeah, completely. And, you know, the way I like to kind of analogize it is that you need as many ingredients as possible if you want to try and make a great recipe, right? If you've got a small number of ingredients, the actual recipes that you can concoct are far more restrictive. And so people want to collect much more data. They want to be much more experimental. You know, the cliche is agile. They want to be much more iterative. They want to try lots of different things and see what works. And I think that's particularly important for the specialty and commercial markets, right, where actually it's not obvious the kind of starting point data sets you're going to use to drive the decision at the end. So I think spreadsheets are wonderful for certain use cases, but they're not the foundations of a great pricing, data-driven decision-making system. Excellent. So it's all about getting that data in and then getting into a place where you can really analyze it. Yeah, and actually use it to drive better decisions, right? So I think a spreadsheet is wonderful for putting some numbers in, doing some calculations on it, getting an output, and then actually a large number of people will then coalesce around that output and do things. But computers can be much more useful than just printing things out onto a screen. And again, spreadsheets are absolutely wonderful for doing that, but they're not the platform that will be able to be deeply integrated into the technology stacks of our clients and do more than just actually spit out a number. On your website, you talk about decision intelligence. Is this all part of that? Is that what you mean? By- yeah. So decision intelligence, in my mind, is the creation of that tight feedback loop between the person who's using the data and the person who's making the decision. Sometimes it's the same person. In our markets, it's very often the actuaries. 
I was raised by an English teacher and accountant, so you, I'm, you'll have to forgive me for wanting to combine some maths with some words. People often use these words interchangeably, and I think they have very specific meanings. So when I say data, I mean like facts and information about the world. Yes. And often it's the job of an actuary to take those facts and information and use them to generate insights, which are then beliefs and opinions, right? So you might have some list of some properties and some claims, and then you might use that to generate some base rates or information about the properties. Those are then beliefs or opinions. And then you will pass those insights over to an underwriter who will take those insights and opinions and use them to make a decision. And so we wanted to create this really tight feedback loop between the people working with the data to generate insights, the actuaries, and then the people working with the insights to make the decisions, the underwriters, so that they could go about their jobs of doing that without worrying about all of the technology. And in fact, the technology bringing them closer together. So that's what decision intelligence is for us. It's that really tight feedback loop between data, insights, decisions, and all the people who have to work in the big team sport of underwriting to actually get great results out of that. It's suddenly making me think of literary reference for this Mr. Gradgrind in Charles Dickens' Hard Times. And he's described as a sort of horse mammal quadruped but there you are the actress looking at the horse mammal quadruped and then is it a gray one or a white one or is it a brown one saying to the underwriter you know what i think the brown ones actually don't live as long as the white ones so let's have a look at that you know what do you think that's a wonderful example and then the underwriter's <laughs> job is at the end goes thank you for your opinion or your belief but now what but I'm i can't do... charge any different for the brown ones i just have to factor it all exactly. in. exactly or by chance the brown one had a massive claim and i'm going to make a decision actually to do something different well, they need a bigger deductible yeah Exactly, right? And that coupling together results in a much, much better output than if those things are done in silos. And so we wanted the technology to not spread them out, but bring them closer together. What are the benefits once you do this? Well, there's productivity and there's cost benefit, but there's also quality benefit, isn't there? One of my very early bosses always used to say, if you're an insurance company, you care about your premiums, your claims, and your expenses. When you do something, think about the impact it has to those three things. And so people often talk about technology as an expense driver, right? Expense saver. And I think that's absolutely true. But I think one of the things that I've seen when I was working at the coalface is, don't get me wrong, we all want to spend less time working on technology versus working in technology when we work in business, right? We wanted to work on technology, we would work in technology. However, once you've got a system that saves you the time and energy from actually doing all of the administration, you have way more time to think about the data and insights and decisions that you're making. So we're seeing clients out there who are looking at our product and saying, we can use this to make better decisions. Like the best thing in the world is when a client says to me, because of your platform, we think we're going to write more business. Because presumably your actuary doesn't have to spend so much time setting up the model. Exactly right. The actuary gets to spend more time on the insurance problem than the technology problem. You've been an actuary. So what did you spend most of your time doing before? One of the big motivators for me setting up HX was a project where I did a six-month project to do some deep analysis of an energy portfolio. And it was one of the magnum opuses of my actuarial career. Five and a half months of that was collecting the data and checking which spreadsheets had the right premium numbers in it. Then two weeks, three weeks of doing some really great analysis, presenting it to the board, showing them, and then them actually writing more business after that piece of work I did. And I thought, that's a bad ratio of time. No one sent me to actuarial school to spend five and a half months collecting data from spreadsheets. So you're solving that problem for the actuary and then for the underwriters again, so they get that output much quicker. Yeah, and also to bring the actuary and underwriter more closely together. So when the underwriter is putting the data into our platform, it is automatically feeding the data that goes to the actuary. 
as that new information is always being uncovered, obviously, the underwriter is seeing new information all exactly, day. Exactly, exactly. It shouldn't be the underwriter's problem to spend a ton of time housekeeping his or her files, telling the actuary which ones were correct, which ones were copy of, copy of, final. Don't use that one, actually. I changed my mind after the broker came to me with a new structure. In technology, there's this phrase, the pit of success, where just through doing your job, you fall into habits that drive a much, much better outcome. And that's something that we really wanted to design and engineer into the system. Something else people are talking about, and I don't necessarily understand this, so I'm glad you're on the show. I, you can explain to me. Pricing transformation. This is a thing that's becoming a bit of a buzzword, or if it hasn't yet, it, it's on its way. What's that all about? It's a good question. It depends who you ask. You hear all these phrases, transformation projects, right? And you normally they mean taking a system and changing it so it's better. In my mind, pricing transformation is about updating the way people use the systems to generate prices, to generate actuarial analyses that feed the underwriting decision and make them more useful. And I think we're going through a kind of era now where people are modernizing their systems across technology in our clients. And what they're seeing is their pricing systems broadly were legacy spreadsheet systems, thousands of spreadsheets spread around the organization. And what they're trying to do is transform that system into something that's much more coherent, much more useful and much more aligned with the underwriting vision and strategy of the business. So that's what we're seeing at the moment. Every section of the technology stack in an insurance company has its day. We had capital and reserving transformations in the actuarial sectors a few years ago. Yes. Solvency 2 kept people very, very busy. IFRS, lots kept of me, accountants. It kept me busy. I always had to report on these traffic lights and all sorts of things. <laughs> well, exactly right. And you know, the thing about the nature of these systems is they're important big systems that move tens of billions of dollars around the market, right? So pricing is very clearly flavor of the month at the moment. And that's a good thing. I think it's the biggest lever of profitability. So the right time for this. And also another thing that's really happening is people moving towards ecosystems. I think a recognition that you can't just be a one-stop shop and you can't be absolutely brilliant at everything. You're more likely to become the jack of all trades and master of not many or none. How are you fitting in with all these ecosystems? Presumably, this is something you're working to because you've got very specific tools and expertise, but obviously you can't do the whole thing. You're not doing policy admin systems, no, are you? No, 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 no. Uh, certainly not. It's a very good question. You know, I talked about data insights and decisions, and I think we are pricing specialists. It's what we do. We're decision-making specialists, yep. right? That's what we do. Pricing being a key subset of the decision-making process. Our focus is very clearly to be a consumer of as many data and insights as is humanly possible. And so while we are very clearly focused on pricing. Pricing sits at the nexus, in my mind, of lots and lots of other parts of the underwriting process. There's lots and lots of data. So you've got to be good at ingesting data, otherwise exactly you right. can't get very good decisions. Right? Yeah. And, you know, I used that recipe analogy earlier and ingredients, like the number of ingredients that we've got, the different data sources we have today, it's growing at an absolutely exponential rate, right? So we have huge numbers of partners. We have this HX Connect ecosystem where we've got lots and lots of technology partners who do cyber data, they do property data, they're specialist data providers. We integrate with them and then we connect with the policy admin systems, we connect with the finance platforms. So you're just making it easy. We have to make it easy. It's the single most important thing. You know, I always say that no underwriter wakes up on Monday and go, yes, it's time to spend lots of time on actuarial models. It's not what <laughs> they do, right? You have to make it easy. You have to make it that pit of success. You have to make it just automatic. So you're very much in favour. You have your own ecosystems. And obviously, you want to plug into others because obviously, there's a long chain of different things. You want to be able to ingest and connect with stuff coming in, but also presumably you want to check all your outputs to go out to other places Absolutely. As well. You know, the pricing output is a subset of the underwriting decision. You know, there's the underwriting workbenches and things that we're seeing. Exactly. And we're partners with lots of those in the market, right? People who go on our website will see lots and lots of underwriting partners, lots of Excellent. data partners, the whole market. 
that's the beautiful thing about pricing and data-driven decision-making is it sits right at the core. Do you think we're on the cusp of really something very exciting happening? I mean, I, it certainly feels like it. You know, this world's digitizing in a good way. How close are we to this very fluid and more digital world really working properly without having to suddenly, you know, at the moment there was seems to be a part of the chain where it'll all spit out and it'll all fall on the floor. And almost like you might need to find a load of paper or something at the bottom or go back to your spreadsheet. But we're nearly there, it seems. Do you think we're close to getting this fully digital, much more fluid world? I can't remember. Is it Ernest Hemingway? The quote from one of his books is, how did that happen? Slowly at first, then very quickly? Yes. Is that how did you go bankrupt, I think? Yes, isn't it? yes, that's it. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure I'm falsely attributing the... Yeah, well, I'll put this one on the notes. I'll go and look it up. Yeah, very good. So, you know, it's, it's a fascinating thing. Are we on the cusp? You can be on the cusp for a really long time, can't you? So I think it may have felt like we've been on the cusp for a little while. I see very material change in the market today. I was talking to one of our clients, the CEO of one of our clients, and he said to me when we raised some money a little while ago, and he said, the first time I've seen in my career in the last 30 years, the technology being capable to keep pace with the needs of the market. The market conditions, we've got a hard market, right? Depending on whom you talk to, but I think most people would say we do. It's better to have a hard market than a soft market. Exactly right, right? We've got the market conditions. And actually, we've got the more broad understanding of technology from the human beings in the room. I think there's been an investment in having people who better understand the technology and then translating that to the other people who are not necessarily interested in technology, but obviously are interested in what it can do. 100%. And I think, look, everything is a human being problem in life. I run a technology firm now with 100 people working. I've realized that every single challenge in business is a human being problem. And I think we've seen a very material shift in the mindsets of the leadership. So no, I think we're very much in the point of very transformative change. When I look at the clients at the forefront, what they're doing now... The actual user. The actual user, what they're doing now versus what they were doing even two or three years ago, it is very materially different. And I'm not saying the whole market is there, but you can only judge the kind of advancement of the market. Well, it's a competitive market. If, if those people doing things materially better are going to leap ahead, then it won't be long for everyone else says, oh, we want to need to do whatever they were doing. Exactly. And, you know, I'm a big believer, you hit the nail on the head, that those are the people... If they start winning, that's all that really matters, isn't it? Yeah, and they already are. You look at some of our clients and what they're reporting on, the the size of the teams generating the level of outcome in their kind of pricing portfolio optimization. They were different phrases for this kind of data-driven decision-making process compared to what was the case five years ago. It's orders of magnitude better. And if you're someone who's got 10 times the number of people to generate one third of the result, you're going to start looking at how you can change those. It's been a cultural change and right at that user level, rather than the user saying, well, why have I to use this new thing? It's not, they've been clamoring for it. Well, they come out of university learning how to use these things, right? Our platform was the first in the market to leverage open source technology, Python being one of the key programming languages that you use to build algorithms yep. in our system. Most grads coming out of university and technical fees, they'd use it. They start learning it. I've got a three-year-old and, you know, they're going to be teaching it to her next year. Yes. So I think, again, it's cliched, isn't it? The hearts and minds. But it is the reality of the situation that that is moving. The zeitgeist has changed. And it's a really great time to be investing, right? You know, insurance is a funny market, isn't it? If you look at the opportunity for insurance companies, as the amount of risk in the world has gone up and the insurance market being the critical kind of support structure for risk in the world, there's demand for the services that we and our clients provide. And that's providing us with the opportunity to go and do more things better. Yes, absolutely. And we've got that multiplier effect because the more things we insure, the more things there are and more things that happen. And then therefore, the more things. Exactly right. So, you know, I think it's very easy to try and talk these things up. But if you look at the facts, the status of the market, the demand for the services, the fact that many of our clients 
they're earning a not zero interest rate on their investment income now. All of the kind of tailwinds for yeah, change are there. John Neal on the show, I've never seen him so excited saying, we're in a kind of real interest rate environment for the first time in 15 years. Isn't that exciting? I sent that podcast to my team, go listen to the opportunity in front of us. <laughs> I said that when I was on the train listening to your podcast, I sent it to my team and said, if you are not excited about the opportunity in front of us yet, listen to this podcast and think about actually, think about what the need is going to be for our business, right? I think so. Yeah, I think it's very, very clear to evidence it now. Whereas previously, I think there was probably a little bit more kind of trying to talk it up. Is there anything holding the market back still? I mean, you know, it seems unrelentingly positive. I'm a naturally positive person, so I always pick up on that. I think to be a startup founder, you have to be an optimist, right? And you, you built your own business too. So I think you need to be an, uh, an optimist to do this. So what would I say? I think when I talk to my founder friends in technology who are selling to insurance companies, I say to them, how excited are you about optimizing your insurance program? And they say, optimizing my insurance program? I'm a technology startup. That sounds really boring and terrible. I say, well... Now think about how our clients feel about optimizing their technology, yeah, right? Yeah. Because one of these things is their core. Our clients are insurance companies. Technology is a critical part of what they do, but it is not their core offering. So one of the things that I see very clearly is the market, I think, in some areas still has a phobia of technology risk. There's a lot of scars there, as you know. There have been so many failed projects and money that disappeared and didn't bring any return. Completely. But I think one of the things that I think holds the market back is there are certain times where failure is a learning process and there are certain times where failure holds you back. So, you know, I always like to use the analogy, are you building a bridge or are you building a network of roads? Because one of those, you have a choice if the road breaks about what you do and the other one you don't. Yeah, you can fork left and go somewhere right. down another, another path. If you're building a bridge over a river and the bridge breaks in the middle, you drown. You drown. And I think <laughs> sometimes in the market, not our clients, we're very fortunate to have clients who understand the difference and who can see taking some technology risk as an opportunity to generate excess return. But I think sometimes the market can be a little bit blind to differentiating between those two types of risk. Yeah, yeah. And I think there are certain times where actually learning from your mistakes is the best way to make something great. And there's times where you can't do that. So sometimes when I look at the market, in technology, this is a very famous cliched phrase of one-way door and two-way door. So can you go through this door only one way? And once you're through it, there's no going back. <laughs> well, actually, if it doesn't quite work, can you go back through the door? And I think sometimes our market can be a little bit quick to put everything into the one-way door bucket. And that makes it projects get bigger. They spend more time and money trying to de-risk things. Higher and then, stakes. Yeah. Higher stakes. And then, you know, at that point, you can start to set yourself up where the investment gets so high that it can be very hard to actually generate a great return. So I, I think, you know, that's a really critical thing. The big technology firms have this wonderful phrase, which is incremental innovation in place. If you're a technology firm, you generate return by taking technology risk. And they try to incrementalize that and move things forward in tight, iterative feedback loops, which brings us back to what we were saying about decision intelligence. I think there's parts of the market where we try and really show them that you can generate really, really great results by taking a little bit of risk, learning from your mistakes and moving forward. So we can agree that we're on the cusp or just about getting over the cusp and getting over the other side and starting to pick up a bit of momentum down the hill on the other side of this technological revolution, this digitization of the marketplace. What do you think that's actually going to lead to when we think about 10 or 15 years' time, something a substantial amount of time when this is all totally bedded in? What's the market going to end up being like? You know, it's a great question. And I think one of the things I think a lot about technology, people often extrapolate views of the future based on their views of now. Yes. 
the thing is, there's lots of time between now and the future. And lots <laughs> yes. of things change over time. So what do I think about how the market will look? One of the biggest things that I see very clearly is that technology, technology is deflationary, right? It's a wonderful thing. Technology lowers the costs of doing certain things, sometimes very significantly, sometimes it drives them down to zero. Right? Yes. The internet was very famous. You'll know this, you're a journalist. It was very famous for driving the cost of distribution down to zero and completely changed the way some sectors completely worked. Yeah. When you look at the technology that's emerging right now, you look at AI, generative AI, you know, there'd be no podcast out there in technology today without worth talking about Oh, we about definitely this. We need to talk about that. Well, you know, we've got something approximating a very productive, intelligent person, scalable, infinitely over time, right? Limited by the number of GPUs and all of the kind of nerdy well, what's technology. A GPU? a GPU is a, a, processing a, a processing unit that does all the heavy lifting of making an AI work. Is there a difference between generative AI and other AI? Generative AI refers to this process whereby you give it some inputs and it creates an output based on the inputs it's been given. So there's lots of different types. So it's more creative. Yes, so exactly. Exactly. So saying, go make me something with these things. That's it. You give it some inputs and it tries to tell you what it should do based on that. So it's much more, yeah, exactly, much more creative. Well, and where do you think AI is going to fit? You know, it sounds like it's going to be living in your system there. At the heart of it, it's going to be suggesting things to both that actuary and the underwriter. There's no way that any platform like ours isn't going to leverage AI in some shape or form to help our clients become more productive. We exist to help Here are clients. some patterns I've found. Are they of any interest, you think? Yeah, it's absolutely inevitable. Well, the systems like ours that will do that. When you look at technology and you look at how it scales productivity and humanity, the printing press, you know, the Industrial Revolution, all of these things... They didn't look like intelligence. Yes. This looks like intelligence. We're now having to kind of define what intelligence means, right? And I think that's kind of remarkable, right? But one of the things that I think very clearly is AI is going to just make us incredibly productive. Unless you believe in the scenario where the AI subjugates humanity, at which point I think we've got different problems than in short tech startup productivity. That's nonsensical, yes, I would say. But uh, Yes, yes. indeed. I just think it's going to make us incredibly productive and then we'll be able to add a lot more value. Completely. But, you know, the thing that I'd always say is we work in a market where every time the frontier of humanity advances, the specialty and commercial market is responsible for taking new risks on top of that frontier. You never really get rid of the old ones. I mean, fire's still there, isn't it? No, completely. I mean, old school, we kind of think we really understand fire, don't we? But it's still not easy because replacement cost is changing all the time. Well, exactly right. And, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head. We thought we understood motor and it turns out, well, we got blindsided by that, didn't we? You're talking about huge numbers of very small things. And then that's still enough to have a really an anomalous year. And UK motor insurance has gone deeply into the red in a surprising way that's had to bring a pricing reaction, hasn't it? I mean, so we thought we were really good at all this stuff. Completely. And the, we've got electric cars and we've got self-driving cars and we've got all sorts of different technologies at the frontier of any industry. It doesn't matter whether it's an insurance sector that is as old as Lloyd's itself or it's a completely new sector. There's always a frontier of risk that needs to be taken. And I think AI is going to advance that frontier and it's going to create even more exciting, amazing innovations that will need insurance. Right. And unless AI, like I say, subjugates humans and can express an opinion on the price of that insurance by itself, it will help some very bright human beings work out how to ensure those risks. And make much more appropriate products that cover exactly what needs to be covered and not what doesn't need to be covered. Hopefully, if we believe that it approximates intelligence and we can make it better, we become more intelligent as a collective and we can do a better job. As you said, we feed the frontier and we get to do much, much more.
We won't be using sledgehammers to crack nuts. We'll be using nutcrackers to cut nuts. Well, exactly. <laughs> and inventing new sorts of nutcracker. Absolutely. One other thing, yes, we've mentioned this now. Your systems, you know, the core customers within the PNC specialty world, which often has relatively small data sets, you know, there aren't that many oil rigs in the world. It's in thousands or it's not in the millions. It's not like cars. A lot of those oil rigs, they're not all exactly the same. In fact, they're all unique in slightly different ways, aren't they? You know, there are really not very many standardized ones. Your system's really good for that. Do you think you could be applicable to the more general insurance world where, you know, we've got millions of things that are actually almost identical, you know, like cars? Yeah. So I'd say two things. Our clients are already using our software in areas like that. Our software is designed for the reality of the entirety of our clients' data landscapes. And we use this phrase very often, small, sparse, and fragmented data sets, which are the really difficult ones. They predominate in the specialty sector, but they exist in every form of insurance. Yes. Small number of satellites and trying to get some insights about them. Exactly. But my big belief is that As we get more and more commoditized data sets, the source of differentiation for every insurance company in the world is going to be the extra data sets that are difficult to wrangle, the unruly ones. And you can have those exactly as you said, in a motor portfolio, you can have them in a life insurance portfolio, you can have them absolutely anywhere. And the people who can use as much data as possible, so not just the ones that are obvious, the ones that are clean and beautiful, but they can go and get live Twitter feeds on Elon Musk's tweets and find a predictive way of looking at that as the value of insuring Teslas. Right, People who can do those sorts of things are going to be the one that squeeze out incremental advantage. So in my mind, small, sparse and fragmented data, unruly data, hard to tame data exists in every single risk-bearing portfolio in the world. Who can make the most of all the data they have they get the differential advantage to their peers. And we know very clearly from the way our clients use our product that you don't have to be insuring satellites or contingency insurance. You can be doing it for absolutely anything. Because you've got the playground where you can go and test all these different hypotheses. That's exactly right. If you can't test them, you can't learn from them. That's excellent. Have you got any final words before we sign off? Check us out. We're doing lots of interesting things at the moment. You know where to find us if you're looking for us. Amrit, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed this. I think you talk very quickly. You've packed a lot in. I'm world famous for talking very fast. I can fit a lot into a small space of time. <laughs> so yeah, your listeners might need to turn the... They very rarely well, need to turn, a, they might have to turn it down. The speed. That's the thing is listeners, yes, they, they tend to speed it up. But <laughs> yeah. I think with this one, they'll have to go sort of 0.8. Exactly right. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>